Um, today we are in the nation of Tajikistan, I believe. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Please forgive me if I'm not. We are in the letter T amongst the nations of the world and the Voice of the Martyrs Prayer Guide. And the nation I want to bring to your attention this morning is Tajikistan. Please, once again, forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. So, again, a hello to everyone here and a hello to everyone watching and listening. God bless you. Hope you had a good week. And thank you for, for joining us. So let me bring to your attention in your prayers this week and onwards, Christian believers in Tajikistan. It is in far eastern Europe, it was obviously under the former uh, communist regime of the Soviet Union. If memory serves me correct, this little country actually borders China. And as I uh, read their situation and circumstance to you, you will come to the conclusion rapidly that unfortunately some things haven't changed a whole lot for them since the Soviet Union fell. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs designates Tajikistan as restricted. Over the last 10 years, most churches in Tajikistan have had their registration revoked, and unregistered churches have to meet in secrecy because it is the poorest of the former uh, Soviet republics. Many pastors and church leaders are actually having to leave the, the country just to make a living. They have to cross the border into uh, Russia in order to support their families. The majority, I found this interesting, the majority of the population is younger than 30. That's interesting. And the country lacks uh, basic infrastructure needs. General corruption and the opium trade have compounded its difficulties. Most Tajiks are Sunni Muslims. Christian converts from Islam are, of course, persecuted or rejected by family members, and government harassment of unregistered churches is increasing. New Christian converts receive the harshest treatment. Believers are sometimes actually physically attacked, beaten, or abused, and they are frequently summoned to appear at the local secret police office. Many churches do meet openly, but informants or spies often attend. It is illegal to... Now, this is really rather strange. This sounds like old communist Soviet Union. It is illegal to teach children about any religion there. About any religion. In 2017, a pastor by the name of Bakram Homatov was arrested for possessing extremist literature. You might be interested to hear what this extremist literature was. This extremist literature was a copy of Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. We're headed that direction ourselves. Bibles are available only in select cities. Most people simply cannot afford one. So there's obviously a need. And again, I think I've said this before, but perhaps sometime when we send our regular donation to Voice of the Martyrs in, perhaps sometime we should earmark it specifically for Bibles. Maybe we have done that. Forgive me if I'm... I'm forgetting. Voice of the Martyrs provides resources for evangelism, of course, and ministry tools for believers uh, conducting outreach. So please uh, pray for these folks and their, 
trying circumstances and, and, and pray for their physical needs too. It's a very poor country. I mean, when you literally have to leave your country to get a job just to make a living in another country, that's, that's pretty rough. So um, please do uh, pray for these folks. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful day and for the past several beautiful days to warm this awful cold winter weather. Thank you for the spring that is coming. We thank you for the ultimate springtime that is coming when the king returns and brings spring which knows no end, literally and spiritually. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Tajikistan and far, far eastern Europe. We pray for their physical needs. Help these folks for their infrastructure to improve, their economy to improve, for these people to be able to make a solid living and care for their families in, in their own homeland. I pray for all of the young folks over there. Surprisingly, their population is so young. I pray for them. Please help them to be able to make a living, to pursue a better life, and to hear in freedom the gospel of Jesus Christ to set their souls free and to prepare them for the world, the real world, the final world, the lasting world to come. I pray that you would ease their political problems and give them freedom to worship, to receive the scriptures, and to live their lives in peace and help some of the old bitter ways of the old Soviet Union to go away and give these folks a new life in many, many ways and many aspects. And of course, we remember all of our brothers and sisters who we've been praying for throughout this manual, throughout the entire world. Don't let us rest until we're doing our duty and physically helping them by way of the organizations we support and through our prayers in any way that we can. And then we pray for everyone in this country, in the various states, and especially for our brothers and sisters in Jesus from around the world who've been watching and listening for so many weeks, so many months now. Help them in their trials, their tribulations, their problems, their difficulties, which are myriad that they are facing in their individual communities, families, and countries. Please reveal yourself to them, of course, in the way that you know best to draw them deeper and closer into you, into true and everlasting life. We pray for our country and its descent into darkness. Help us to arrest the darkness and to fight the darkness and to stand against it, whatever the cost may be. As individuals and as the church of Christ in this country, representing the kingdom of Christ, working and laboring for the kingdom of Christ until the great king returns one day perhaps sooner, perhaps later. Help us to do our duty on our watch to the death and to beyond. Bless everyone here who has come to hear you speak to them out of your word and bless all of those watching and listening, listening to your words that you inspired your blessed apostle. Help us to have the courage and to have the vigilance and diligence to apply these principles and standards to our lives. These are eternal standards. These are instructions from you, not from any human being and not from any flawed human culture. And help us to be a light in dark places, to lead others to the light, you who are light and the source of all true light. We pray for those who are on our prayer request list for some weeks and all the needs mentioned today. 
and those that we don't know of. And please forgive our imperfect prayers, but honor our prayers, O sovereign God, on behalf of those for whom we are praying. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord our God, our one and only true rock and redeemer, you who are our only hope, and you who are more than hope enough for one and for all and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we customarily do to honor the reading of the word of the Lord. Moving on through our journey in the Paul's letter to the church or churches in Ephesus, we're going to conclude chapter 5 today. Of course, next week we'll proceed into chapter 6, which concludes the household codes for Christian families, for Christian households. And then we'll close the book with probably, of course, one of the most famous passages in all the New Testament, the great spiritual warfare passage of the New Testament. So, uh, specifically, Ephesians chapter 5, 28b, the last half of verse 28, on through verse 33, the end of the chapter. But I'm going to go ahead, if you pardon the expression, and take a running start by reading all of verse 28 again. So Ephesians 5, 28, 33. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. And here we'll begin unpacking the text today. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because... We are members of His body. Notice He's bringing another metaphor in there now. And a quotation. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave or cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So if I could give a title to Breaking Down the Household Codes uh, further for husbands and wives today, let's call it Love and Respect, which we finished the chapter with. Love and Respect. Obviously, there's two of the best, soundest, healthiest ingredients for a healthy marriage. Love and respect. But we've got a while before we get there. First of all, verse 28b. And I hope you kept in your head, you remember uh, the truth from the text as we unpacked last week. So Paul's conclusion from the text that we explored last week, moving on into finishing his household codes for husbands and wives. He, that is the husband, who loves his own wife, loves himself. So this statement was made, this statement here made by Paul, it's actually a restatement. It's the first of two restatements of Paul's main exhortation to husbands to, to love their wives, as was first given back in verse 25. And there'll be another restatement of the first basic or overall general command uh, in verse 33, that he will conclude his instructions for husbands and wives, and we conclude the chapter. So we should recall here 
or it should bring to mind another apostle's uh, advice or instructions for Christian marriages for the house, as we would say, household codes, as they've traditionally been called, Simon Peter's. If you remember some months, oh my goodness, I'd say months, maybe in a year or more now, that we went through the, the two letters of Peter, he gave household codes as well. And it's, it should cause us to recall his inspired words upon marriage, in particular that he gives to husbands. So let's go there. Um, if you want to go there with me, First Peter 3. Whoa, I jumped too many books. Pardon me. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. By the way, this was pretty countercultural for the time as well. You husbands, specifically Christian husbands, likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor. Here's part of the operative part of this command or a very important part of this command. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, salvation, a member of the body and bride of Jesus Christ, a member of the new humanity. So that your prayer... Now, interesting, I'd love to pick apart this verse all over again, but I don't have time to. So that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter instructs husbands, again, to live with your wives in an understanding way. The most important part of that command is... Why does he do that? Since wives, he states, are Christians, are equals as members of the body and bride of Christ. They are fellow heirs of eternal life. Therefore, you are to live with them in an understanding way and give them all honor and respect due. They are not only, that person is not only your wife, that person is a sister in Christ. That sister is a fellow heir of eternal life. That sister is a co-equal as in a member of the body and bride of Christ. A member of the new redeemed humanity who will inhabit the kingdom of God in eternity. Therefore, most certainly you are all the more to live with them in an understanding way. Um, also, we should remember, and I think I may have made a few remarks upon this, back when we examined verse 25. Don't forget the command amongst believers in general. All followers of the Lord are to love their Christian neighbors as themselves. And remember, these are commands for specifically Christian couples, where the husband and the wife, both spouses, are Christian believers. So Paul is saying, hint, hint, remember, your wife is also a Christian, a believer, a fellow member of the body and bride of Christ. Therefore, you are to treat your Christian neighbor, yes, that includes even your spouse, as yourself. You are to love them as your own person, your own self. And you are to honor them and respect them. And you are to place their interests above or before your own. Now, the point also that Paul's making here concerning husbands and wives, it's, it's a little different. It's a little different in this way. If I can uh, get a little more nitty-gritty, as we say, if I can use that expression. Neighbors are not commanded to love their neighbors as their own bodies, are they? You should love your neighbor as yourself. You, you should take care of your neighbor with due diligence as you would care for yourself. Similar. Not exactly the same. Paul says something pretty intense here. 
when he says, you Christian husbands are to care for your wife as you take care of your own body, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Holy Spirit. So Christian neighbors are commanded to love their Christian neighbor, but they're not commanded to love their Christian neighbor or take care of their Christian neighbor as they do their very own body. But a Christian husband is commanded to take care of his own Christian wife, his wife, as he takes care of his own body. And so by doing so, thereby love themselves. That's an interesting thing to say. Paul's point here is implying, he is implying something of, of a relationship, a connection, a bond, if you will, between a husband and a wife that's somewhat unique. That's somewhat unique probably from any other relationship that a person can have with any other friend, with, any, with a child, with a parent, with any other family member. That's interesting. He is saying that the relationship of a husband to a, with a wife is a unique relationship amongst the relationships that you will have with other people. It's a different experience, different relationship. And one should wonder about this naturally and wonder about this. So Paul anticipates that, or the Spirit anticipates that. So Paul proceeds to further explain this in the remainder of the household codes, verses 29 to 30, 32. So verse 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, reasonable appeal for most people, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here's the most important part of it, however. Just as Christ also does the church. Nevertheless, he's still speaking of Jesus and his relationship with the church. There's the chief example. There's the standard. There's the model. There's the chief motivating factor. So let's unpack this first phrase. For no one or no one man has ever despised his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it. Now this is not a new metaphor. This metaphor was used elsewhere uh, in, in the ancient world. It was actually rather popular to speak of some sort of relationship of caring for someone or caring for your family or caring for a group or body of people as you would care for your very own self. So Paul is inspired to borrow that metaphor. It was around for a while. I'll give you just one example. Uh, just one example where this metaphor was used elsewhere in the history of the ancient world. 217 B.C., in particular in Greece, a man of note by the name of Agilaus urged King Philip V of Macedon to, quote, You should take thought and care for the Greek people as you would your own body. So he's urging a king to take care of his subjects as he would take care of his very own body. And that's pretty radical advice for a monarch of the time. Monarchs of the time were not under the obligation through most cultures to take such vigilant care of their subjects as they would themselves. So this metaphor was around for a while. Paul uses it here, but a little more intense. Now, I encountered this this week, but in print, what about those who don't cherish and nourish their body? Some folks are like that. Some husbands don't take very good care of themselves or take as good a care of themselves as, as they should. Well, Paul probably doesn't mean those who are careless. Also, there are some people who really do hate their own bodies for whatever unfortunate reason. Well, this metaphor... <laughs> is agreed upon by, let me say, all reasonable people. Paul is giving you a metaphor that was popular at the time, and this metaphor can be agreed with by all reasonable people. 
it is reasonable that all reasonable folks will cherish and nourish their own body, not hate or despise or abuse their own bodies, right? So a reasonable person will naturally and be responsible and take proper care of his own body. And so Paul writes, he nourishes his body and he cherishes his body. This statement obviously implies what the husband's careful, vigilant care for his wife's well-being should be. You take care of your wife with the same care, the same diligence that you take care of your very own physical, and allow me to add, emotional person. And even more importantly, it should be stated again, note, that the words nourish and cherish ultimately in this verse describe Jesus Christ's nurturing of His bride, the church. Again, we are to follow the model and example of Christ. Jesus Christ cherishes and nourishes His church. He has in the past, He is now, He always will be, and so Christian husbands, thereby we follow His example. Let me pick apart the language to a degree that Paul uses. Nourish, hektrefo. Hektrefo is the word he uses for nourish. And it's a word that often appears in the Bible, in New Testament Greek. And this word, most of the time, is used uh, most often to describe the way that a parent is to care for a child. That's how you see this word used most of the time. Hektrefo, the way that a, a mom and a dad should take care of their child. Now, this is not hinting in any way that a husband should look upon his wife as a child and there's some sort of parental child relationship there. No, no, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you, Christian husband, should take care of your wife with the same care and diligence that responsible parents take care of their own children, in particular their young children. That's very careful. That's pretty strong. That's very active, never-ending care and vigilance and diligence. And the word he uses, cherishes, is pretty interesting too. It's talpo, T-H-A-L-P-O, talpo. And I, I really liked my word study on this word this week because it has to do with nature. Most of the time that this word appears in Greco-Roman literature of the time period, it has to deal with nature, it has to deal with animals. It's pretty poignant in, the, in regards to animals. This word was often used in ancient literature to describe female, even male birds watching over their nests, watching over their eggs, watching over their little chicks, watching over their nestlings. So he's saying, Christian husband, you are to use the same care and love and vigilance and diligence in caring for your wife that a mama and papa bird exercise over the nest and watching the eggs and watching the babies hatch. I think that's rather poignant. I like that. I like the nature metaphors and examples that he uses. The word otherwise was used simply to describe very great care for someone or something. And again, always, I'm going to say this probably two or three times in the next few minutes. <laughs> always remember, always remember, never forget, the pattern and example husbands are to follow is that of Jesus the Christ himself. Who he is, what he is, what he has done, what he is doing now, and what he will do. He's the standard. He's the model. He's the example. I believe I said this last week. If in doubt, what would Jesus do? How does Jesus love? 
Husbands should always be aware of how Christ has loved His church, how Christ has cared for His church, how Christ does care for His church, and how He will in the future care for His church. And so thereby we are to follow His lead and follow His example. Christ cares. Christ cherishes His wife, His bride, His church, made up of each and every single solitary one of us the world over from generations past and perhaps generations to come made up of all of us Christian believers verse 30 because we are members of his body now you notice he throws in another metaphor there that's interesting isn't it now he doesn't throw in another metaphor to confuse you to muddy up the water I think he just can't help himself plus he's inspired by the Spirit. So you're dealing now with two of the most beloved and popular metaphors for Christ and Christian believers, for Christ and His people. We're obviously already dealing with the metaphor of Jesus Christ is the great bridegroom and His church, His people, corporately together, are His bride, His wife. And now in verse 30, for good measure, to strengthen up his point or punch up his point, Paul throws in another metaphor. We Christian believers are members of His body. So now he tosses in or makes use of the metaphor of Jesus Christ as the head of the body, and we, the church, are members of the body. He cherishes and takes care of his bride because, remember, his bride is also his metaphorical body. A Christian husband should take care of his wife as he takes care of his own body. Well, remember, Christ not only is a great bridegroom, but He's the head of the church, and the church is His body. He takes care of His body. He cherishes it and nurtures it. So you should take care of your wife as your own body. You see what He's doing there? And He's using both metaphors to do that. Again, reason given that Christ takes great care of the church is because every person, every believer, is individually a member of his corporate body. So you see here, <laughs> Paul is using the image, the metaphor of the church now as the body of Christ to simply strengthen his argument, to strengthen his command that a Christian husband should care for his own wife as his own body. And of course, a very important and touching point is this. Christ's body, for which he sacrificed himself, was not his own physical person, but the church, believers, as this body. See? He calls us his body. And he sacrificed his own physical, personal well-being to the most horrible death by which a person could be executed at that time. To save, to redeem, to nurture, to cherish his metaphorical body, you and I, all Christian believers together who make up this body of Christ, this bride of Christ in this world. Not many mere mortal husbands have had to be crucified for their wives. Few have. The time Paul was writing this letter shortly afterwards. We probably aren't going to have to be crucified for our wives. Well, who knows? 
but we may have to physically die for our wives, as we spoke of last week. So follow the model and the example. Think of what Jesus Christ did for his wife, for his bride, the death he died for his wife, for his bride. Verse 31, something of a citation or paraphrase quote. For this cause, and notice he goes all the way back to shortly after the dawn of creation. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave or cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So obviously here we have Paul quoting Genesis 2.24. Let's go there if you're so inclined. Won't be there long, rather quickly. Genesis 2.24. Um, keep going, Scott. Here we go. Sorry, I was in chapter 3. 2.24. For this cause, according to Genesis 2.24, the marriage of the first human beings, our parents, shortly after the dawn of creation, for this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave or cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Almost an exact citation of the creation of human beings and God's original intent and purpose for human marriage and human relationships thereby. So Paul quotes from the ultimate authority to back his teaching here now, doesn't he? He goes all the way back to shortly after the dawn of creation and the creation of humanity. He quotes God Almighty himself. God establishing marriage for human beings from shortly after the dawn of creation. Here is Paul's reasoning and here is Paul's logic. If I can sum it up for you this way. The husband should so love his wife because she has become a very real, very vital, integral part of him. According to God, not according to me, not according to the Roman Empire, not according to culture. I am taking you back to shortly after the dawn of creation to the ultimate authority, He Himself, God who created us all. God who inaugurated and instituted human marriage in the first place, ages ago. The two have deeply and mysteriously have become one flesh, so decrees God. This is also a profound illustration, if I can use that expression. Yes. I believe that's correct. A profound illustration, again, of Jesus Christ's union and bond with His church. Remember again, never forget, a Christian marriage is a living symbol, is a living metaphor for the relationship of Jesus Christ and His church. That is of absolute paramount importance. You see what he's saying here, folks? It's not all about us. Put your spouse above yourself, and yet it's even bigger than your spouse and more important than your spouse. This is bigger and beyond all of us. This is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son Himself, King of kings and Lord of lords, and His relationship to His wife, His bride, the church made up of all Christian believers of all ages who will inhabit eternity. That's what this is really all about. 
your marriage and every part of it is a living symbol and a living metaphor of that reality, of that relationship. It's even bigger and beyond us. It goes beyond us. That's what your life, that's what your marriage, if you're married, that's what it points to. That's what it really is ultimately about. Never forget that. That's the key. How many times does this man remind us of this in this relatively short passage, right? Just as the church, and this is for husbands in particular here, just as the church, just as the bride is joined to Christ, so therefore, Paul says, Christian wives are joined to their Christian husbands. This motivates Christ to love his bride, and so therefore, naturally, it should motivate the Christian husband to love with agape love, godlike love, as we discovered last week, their wives. <coughs> Jesus is God. He loves with agape love. Therefore, Christian husband, you who are to bear the image of Christ and to represent Him in this world, love your wife with agape love as Jesus Christ agape loves His wife, the church. Now, this leaving father and mother. Given when God inaugurated marriage shortly after the dawn of creation, some folks have a problem with this. They shouldn't. Uh, you can compare this command with all the other commands that Scripture gives us to care for fellow Christians and to care for our family members. Some people just flat refuse to obey this. They just flat refuse to obey this. Other people take it to extremes and just completely abandon their, their parents or their former family and wash their hands of them. That's not what the Apostle is saying. We don't go to either extreme here. But it is important. Leaving father and mother simply means, and for some folks this is, this is something very hard to obey, hard to swallow. Leaving father and mother simply means that husbands and wives let go of their primary allegiance to their parents and they must transfer that primary allegiance to their spouse. That is a command. At the same time, you don't abandon your parents. You don't abandon and reject your family, obviously. No family member is rejected or abandoned here in this statement. Nevertheless, family members are still obligated, obviously, to love and to take care of one another. But the principal focus, however, must be on the spouse when you're married. It's also interesting to note that I, like, I had fun with my word studies this week. You, you folks, you say, oh yeah, you do, Scott. And then you drag it in here on us and bore us with it. Well, hopefully I'm not boring you to death with it. I think it's important to dig in the original language because it helps you to understand, really understand what they're saying. And it also, if you're equipped with this, you can see through false teaching easier and faster, more accurately. In the original Greek, in which Paul wrote this letter, the words cling, a man clings to his wife, he cleaves to his wife, clings to his wife. Um, that word has the literal sense of gluing two objects together. In fact, the root of the word that Paul uses here is kola, K-O-L-L-A. And kola is literally the Koine Greek word for glue. 
It's used when you glue two things together. <laughs> That's the word that he uses here for the bond, for the relationship of a husband and a wife. They are to be glued together. So what Paul is saying here is that, yes, husbands and wives have been bound, have been bonded, have been glued together. That is the word that he uses. They have been bonded or glued together in a very close relationship that encompasses, I, I hope you agree by this time, uh, encompasses most all aspects of a person. And here's a pretty profound statement. Perhaps, I won't say perhaps, I say it will. This is fact. Only a person's relationship to God, to Jesus Christ himself, is to be considered more profound than the relationship of a husband to a wife. Your relationship to your wife is even more profound than the relationship to your kids, to your siblings, your parents, your friends. If you're married, only, I think, or arguably, you can interpret what Paul is saying, is that only your relationship to God, to Christ Himself, is more profound than your relationship to your spouse. And this regards particularly a husband to his wife because we are to be living symbols and metaphors of Jesus Christ and his church. That's deep water, folks. That is deep water. Very profound. Paul says so. This is profound, what I'm teaching you, what I'm telling you. Okay? Verse uh, 32. Um, this mystery is great. Or you could arguably uh, translate what he says. This mystery is great. This mystery is profound. But, remember, I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. That's why this is so great and so profound. Because it's ultimately about Jesus Christ and His church. Uh, so, by the way, first of all, uh, in the ancient world, in the ancient Mediterranean world, in the literature of the time period that Paul wrote this letter, I didn't know this until this week. Paul's saying, hey, wake up, listen up. I'm saying something very important just by the language that he uses. Uh, in literature, the time period when Paul wrote the letter, whenever somebody spoke, or particularly when anybody wrote this phrase, I am speaking thus and so, for I am speaking thus and so, that would wake everybody up. They would pay close attention to. They would all know immediately what that phrase meant. That phrase... it was used to stress the importance of what a person was saying. That phrase was used to stress the importance of whatever you were speaking, or in particular, whatever you were writing about. And this means thereby that Paul is saying, I am giving you a solemn truth here. This is one of the most solemn truths that you'll be confronted with in your relationships in this life. I'm giving you a solemn proclamation. I'm giving you a declaration of divine authority. Listen very carefully to what I'm telling you. This is very important. That's his way of literarily saying this in this letter. So we should fully understand what Paul is saying about marriage. And he draws again upon God's original plan for human marriage. As designated, inaugurated, established as shortly after the dawn of creation. And you see what he's saying here? This is one of the most important parts of this. Think what he's saying here is... Our, 
I tried to write this carefully, so I may have to read this. And I wrote it, I didn't like that, wrote it down another way, I didn't like that. I had to go back several times. God's original plan for human marriage, even as early as our original parents, shortly after the dawn of creation, it was to symbolize, it was to represent the coming relationship of His Son, God the Son, the Christ, to His bride, the church. Human marriage was always meant from the very beginning to be a living symbol and metaphor of the Christ and His church. It was always meant to be that way. Always. Isn't that something? Even in ages past, before the Messiah arrived, marriage was to be a symbol of the Messiah who would come and His coming relationship with His bride, His people. It was always ultimately about Christ, God the Son, and His bride. Marriage has always been to represent that relationship all through history, throughout the entire divine plan. That's amazing. And for the first time in my life, in my studies, that I got that by what He's saying here. It was always that way. Always to be that way. Always to point to Jesus and to His people. So once again, for the third Sunday in a row, it's all about Jesus in the end, ultimately. All ultimately about Christ and His bride. Marriage has always been about that. Is and ever shall be. Dr. S. M. Bow and his Commentary writes, quote, The original created institution of the union of husband and wife was itself always modeled on what would be Christ's union with the church as His bride, His body as its archetype that marriage symbolizes, that marriage points to. On the historical plane, marital union becomes a type of the historical fulfillment in Christ. You see? Prior to this disclosure in Christ, the ultimate reality on which marriage was predicated and to which it would later refer to was a mystery. But now that the Christ has come, it is no longer a mystery. It's all out in the open. It's all been fully revealed, you see? No longer a mystery. Fully revealed to all of us. End quote. Isn't that interesting? You and I, our marriages, even all that can be said about Adam and Eve is to be interpreted with reference to Jesus Christ and His church. That's an amazing thing. So you see, once again, Paul is giving us what? Even in marriage. I never got this before. I was so happy about that this week. I'm like, I get it. He's giving us the big picture. He's giving us the master plan. He's giving us the grand plan all over again. And he's saying, don't you get it? Even your marriages are pointing to the big picture. The grand plan, the master plan. Jesus Christ, God the Son, coming according to divine plan, dying for His wife, His bride, the church. It's all about Him. It's all about her. And you're part of her. You're part of the divine plan. You get it? You see? That's what He's saying. It's wonderful. It's exciting. I think it's exciting. Clinton Arnold writes in his commentary, this so-called mystery, now fully revealed, refers to the union of husband and wife as a divinely instituted illustration 
of the union of Christ and His church. And it is great because it is so profound, because it is about God the Son Himself. Verse 33, concluding verse for the household codes of husbands and wives, the children and servants or employees next week, and our concluding verse to chapter 5. Nevertheless, let each individual among you, he's probably, uh, he's giving us something of a summary in conclusion here now, isn't he? And when he says each individual amongst you, yes, he is speaking to the husbands, but the wife is included here too in this conclusion, in this summary. Nevertheless, let each individual, or you could translate as that each individual person amongst you, nobody's left out here, also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So here Paul, uh, he's offering you something of a summation, isn't he? And he's offering a summation concerning these household codes for marriage for husbands and wives. Uh, he's giving you an inconclusion, as we would say. And he does this, if you notice, by repeating what he stated and taught earlier. I'll give you a little more. On, I'm going to get a bit technical on you. This is an inclusio, what they call in the seminary literarily an inclusio. Okay. Nevertheless, um, that the New American Standard Bible gives you uh, could arguably translate it as, therefore, in conclusion, as, as we would say. Now this, again, summarizes his teaching while he is gently reminding you to draw or recognize some important conclusions here from what he has taught previously. Let each individual among you... <laughs> well, that's pretty obvious and to the point now, isn't it? Not a one of you is left out here. I'm speaking to absolutely everyone. This is for all Christians in marriage, no exceptions. Every couple in the Christian church, every couple in the Christian community is fully expected to live by this teaching, to live by these standards and these principles. Again, no one is exempt here. No special reasons, exceptions, or qualifiers. Paul is emphatic in this. Now this verse, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, is what you call an inclusio. Uh, let me ex uh, you see this in the Bible absolutely all over the place. It's really cool how the Spirit inspired these, these men to write this way. And I've explained this to you before. Uh, look for it on your own when you when you're, have your daily devotions or your Bible study. But in ancient times, this was really important. And inclusio is this. It's kind of like a, a statement that serves as brackets or parentheses. It's when a biblical writer will state up front something really important and then he elaborates on it, he teaches on it for a while, and then he gives you a conclusion or summary by restating it again. So he's created these brackets. And sometimes it'll be a short passage like we're uh, reading, sometimes it'll be a whole chapter, sometimes a couple of chapters can be included in inclusio. Paul does that on a small scale here. He gives you something very important, he teaches on it for a little while, and then he restates it again and expects you to draw some very important conclusions from what he stated both times and what he had to explain in between. Okay. Passage begins, ends on the same note, same declaration. It's important. This is a way to strongly underline the importance of what Paul is teaching, what he's talking about. And notice Paul mentions specifically or explicitly love and respect. There 
you have the two keys to a successful marriage. And probably people who are not even Christian believers would arguably agree with that. A marriage should be built upon love and respect. But Paul uses the words agape and phobeo. Now, folks who adore those older translations are not going to like me when I say this, but in older translations it was translated as love and fear because he uses the word phobeo, from which we get the word phobia. But phobeo, depending on what context it was used, does not always mean fear, as in cowering fear, to be afraid of. Marriages aren't to be built on cowering, the wife cowering in fear. No, 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 no. That's not at all what the man is saying. Marriages are to be built on love, agape love, godlike love, the way, love the way God loves, love which is a gift of God, obviously. And phobeo here in this context, yes, should be translated as respect. Healthy, productive, genuine respect. Godlike love and respect for all of the reasons I hope that are apparent that we've been studying for the past several weeks. There's the two keys to a successful, if I may be more specific, Christian marriage. Agape, godlike love, and respect. Respect for hopefully what's going on <laughs> in that marriage. Okay? Now notice, again, I know I'm wearing you out with this phrase, notice important, Paul does not complete his instructions to Christian spouses, husbands or wives, by qualifiers. There's no qualifiers there. Any extra conditions or requirements. Let me give you an example, a couple of examples. One for either spouse. He doesn't say this. Um, husbands, love your wives with agape love if they... That, 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 that. That's not what he says. Obviously, is it? Nor does he say to the wives, Wives, respect your Christian husband if they... doesn't say that. These are instructions. They are given as our husband and wife. The husband and wife's due obedience to Christ. Because it's all about Him. It's all about Him. He is even more important ultimately than your spouse. It's all predicated on the Son of God, God the Son. Never forget that. So sometimes when you and your wife or you and your husband aren't having the greatest of days, put on the brakes and say, Jesus, this is about the Christ. Even dealing with you, and you're not being very easy to deal with today, it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. That might help a whole lot. In a lot of situations and circumstances, might it not, brothers and sisters? Very interesting. Very, very interesting. On our difficult days. But you folks don't have difficult days. I know that. These instructions are given as our due obedience to God, to Christ. In Mar now this is very, oh, this is so important. In marriage as He has designed. As He has ordained. Right? Paul goes back to the dawn of creation to remind us. 
Brothers and sisters in Ephesus to whom I am writing, these words are not my own. This authority is not my own. These words are given to me by God the Almighty who created human beings and who inaugurated and established marriage Himself. This is not coming from me. This is not coming from the Roman emperor. This is not coming from the government. This is not coming from culture. This is coming from God. God created human beings. God created marriage and no one else. His mandate for marriage for human beings. This is where Paul's words and authority comes from. And we all know in what absolute madness and chaos marriage is being transformed into in this world and in this culture. So when we proclaim the Christian message of marriage, it's not coming from us. It's coming from God the Almighty. He is the one whose truth we stand for and stand on and represent and defend. Now, obviously, we Christians are going to struggle with this because we're not perfect people. Praise God, Paul tells us that one day we will be made perfect. There's the joy of that hope, but we're not yet. There are going to be days when we are, when we are all going to struggle with these instructions because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen culture that is getting more and more and more aggressively vicious towards Christian marriage or marriage as it was originally intended and created to be, it's not going to be easy. And we as individuals are not yet perfect. But nevertheless, we've received our marching orders from the highest authority of all. The highest authority possible. These nevertheless are to be honored as instructions, God's instructions, not Paul's or anyone else's. So we do not abandon our responsibilities before God to our spouses and for our spouses. For again, marriages are a living metaphor of Jesus Christ and His church. So let me add this. It's a bit sobering and it's a bit frightening. If marriage amongst human beings ultimately is all about a living metaphor and a living symbol of the Son of God Himself and His bride, the church, then any attempt to tear down or to destroy marriage as God has created it, that is an act of blasphemy against God the Almighty, God the Son. That just hit me this week as well. That's pretty frightening. And that's pretty sobering. Be that symbol. Be that metaphor. Because you will be there in eternity when it is all ultimately completed at last. And forevermore. And it will all come together at that time. Let me give you just few brief words from Dr. Clinton Arnold, who's taught this book for decades, and I've so enjoyed his commentary. He gives a great little summary here. By the way, we're not done with the household codes yet. Next week, we're going to be hard on the kids and the servants. 
or employers and, and employees. And it's interesting, Paul's household codes in Ephesians are different in some ways than they are in Colossians. And it's a bit different than what Simon Peter writes. They're writing the same standards and the same principles, but you do get, you do get different perspectives from the different letters. So it is, is pretty interesting. Dr. Arnold writes, there's often a, a tacit assumption or even accusation that Paul accommodates himself to the cultural patterns of the day when it comes to the role relationships of husbands and wives. I hope that it is abundantly clear now that that is not the case from this passage where Paul provides not only a divine, a theological, a God justification, for example, male leadership in the home, but he also gives you the very paradigm for how it should be carried out in a Christian marriage. Almost everything about this vision of Christian marriage is totally counter to all the prevailing Greco-Roman cultural practices of Paul's day. And of course, it is almost totally counter to the cultural practices of our day, and not only in America, but, but the world over, really. It's also important to recognize that marriage itself <laughs> points to the union, closeness, and intimacy of Christ and His church, but the relationship clearly works the other way as well in terms of setting the pattern of how husbands and wives understand and carry out their respective roles. The Christ-centered perspective, the Christ-centered perspective, is deeply woven through every aspect of this passage. For example, wives are to defer to their husbands as they do to Christ. Defer to their husbands because the husband is like Christ in that he serves is the role of head of the family. Husbands are to be a serve as head or leader of their wives as Christ is head or leader of the church. Husbands are to sacrificially love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives as Christ did and does for the church. So this Christ-centered motivation and pattern cannot ever be relativized, cannot ever be discarded, cannot ever be dismissed because it is paradigmatic always. It is not simply an analogy. The way the church responds to Christ serves as an informing example to the wives and the manner in which Christ leads, sacrifices, loves, and cares for His church is the example par excellence for husbands. The example is as significant as the model of Christ's love presented in chapter 5, verse 2, which states, Walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave Himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God, just as Jesus Christ is the defining example of love for the church, so also is Jesus Christ the ultimate example of leadership, love, and care for Christian husbands. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful text and aiding us to live happy and healthy lives in our homes, in our relationships, amongst husbands and wives, ultimately as symbols for you, of you, your divine plan, of the divine Son, and His relationship with His church, with us, all of us, together as one. Help us by the power of your Spirit to resist the evils of this age and to stand on these principles, to live these principles 
because it's all about our beloved Savior who gave himself for us and will return for us and will transform the universe for us. Help us all to put these principles to work in our life and help others to do so with sound advice in the spirit of love in which Paul wrote this letter. In the sacred and holy name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.